to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Estberkuldova. Joining me today is Sarah Esther Lagesson, Associate Professor at School of Criminal Justice at the Rutgers University, to discuss her book, Digital Punishment, Privacy, Stigma, and the Harms of Data-Driven Criminal Justice, published in 2020 with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the show, Sarah. Thank you so much for having me. Firstly, uh, let me start by saying that I really enjoyed reading your book and that it is a very important contribution on the subject of digital punishment, which is probably going to get more important as we go. <laughs> you draw the reader into a rapidly growing market for digital criminal records, court data, arrest records, where raw public data is extracted, aggregated and processed, and then turned into different forms of intelligence products and sold to background checking companies. The access to public data, which was intended to hold the government and public agencies accountable, has instead become a trove of valuable data for private companies on individuals. The data, as you write, and I quote, is often leveraged against people for shaming, surveillance and punishment that extends beyond the justice system. Ushered in by new technologies, digital punishment is an enduring form of criminal stigma that travels across mugshot websites, background check services, and Google search results. Criminal records and background checks have become a lucrative and central part of American life. The American public uses criminal records not only to make important decisions about whom to employ or rent to, but also as fodder for entertainment, voyeurism, and public shaming. These criminal records and other public data travel and are disseminated, copied and recreated across private and public parties numerous times. This, mark, this makes the destruction of the original ineffective. The stigma persists and is amplified through the algorithmic architectures and data-hungry markets that live of exploiting open source data and intelligence on individuals. With your book, you want to make people understand the ways in which digital punishment harms the many that become its victims and the legal and social consequences of these markets. For this, it is necessary to understand both record keeping and technological change. But before we delve into all the chapters and the argument, I would like you to unpack a bit the key concept of digital punishment. You argue that digital punishment is marked by four key qualities. Firstly, you say it is disordered, as data is produced by thousands of different criminal justice agencies operating at country or city levels. What does this mean for those who appear in these records? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think the first thing I learned when I was doing research for this book is that we tend to think of a person having a single criminal record. I think it exists somewhere in a file or in a database. And the truth is people have hundreds, if not thousands of different sources of criminal records. So for the, a person trying to navigate this record or fix an error or get a record expunged or just even get an understanding of what's on their record, um, that involves going to every single agency that might have a copy of a record or have created their own record. So it becomes a very disordered uh, data ecosystem for a person. And that's just in the private sector, in the public sector. So when we fold in the private sector, it's just exponentially more complicated. And then the other thing that's disordered is that we tend to think of criminal records as reflecting a criminal conviction, but these records are created at the point of an arrest. So well before a criminal charge and well before a conviction. So that, that also plays into the disordered nature of the data that it can reflect sort of any stage of legal system processing. 
Neat. And secondly, you argue that digital punishment is commodified. A huge market has evolved where private actors claim to deliver records in a manner that is more objective and data-driven and efficient than the government. Uh, could you tell us more about this commodification? How, when, and why did this market evolve and whom does it serve? Yeah, it really came out of the turn towards digitizing, you know, everyday life in the legal system and, and, and all of our systems. And, you know, these records in the United States are very unique because they are governed by public records law. Um, but it used to take a little bit of work to go access the records. You had to go to a courthouse or go to a jail and look at a piece of paper or ask for a specific file. So you had to know what you were looking for and you had to put some effort into it. When things have become digital, you can, you know, no longer require to just search for a single record on a person. You can ask for all of the records all at once. And so we've moved towards this sort of bulk aggregation of criminal record data. And even though it's in a bulk form, the same laws still apply. So it's still a public record. So for a data broker, this is a super cheap and easy to access source of personal data about people. Um, and of course, the legal system is concentrated in low income communities. So a lot of these data can be used for consumer marketing purposes for products that are being targeted towards low income people. Um, and of course, there's lots of personal data contained in these records, which make them very attractive to commodification. So like people's full names, their birth dates, their height, their weight, their home address, all of those things are often contained in these records, with making them even more valuable on the private market. And then you argue that digital punishment is also surveillance, where the broader gaze of uh, digital punishment marks the person with suspicion and distrust, even if they were never actually convicted, as you just said, of a crime. Digital records appear to have amplified many of pre the pre-existing problems in the criminal justice system. Maybe you could say more about this in the context of the increasing proliferation of surveillance architectures after the COVID. We have seen many more of these also in workplaces and, and so forth. So. Yeah, I think that we you know think about surveillance as sort of like the action of surveillance or like you know what it means to be surveilled, but criminal records play an important role of sort of being the building blocks of surveillance and often to justify continued surveillance. And so um, this kind of gets back to the notion that a lot of criminal records are not about a criminal conviction, but rather they're about some sort of um, interaction with the legal system. And so you can sort of see how this becomes like a compounding issue. So if someone lives in a heavily policed or heavily surveilled neighborhood, they're much more likely to be put into some sort of database or to have an arrest record because they're just around police all the time. Once you have an arrest record, that justifies the next phase of surveillance, right? Because you've been marked as a suspicious person. So the criminal record kind of works as a way to justify and then continue to expand surveillance in really broad ways. And then, of course, when it shows up on the internet, this becomes kind of this other form of sort of private sector surveillance. People feel like they're always under, you know, carceral control in some way, even though it's perhaps through a mugshot website rather than necessarily their local police. Indeed. And fourthly, you argue that digital punishment is disparate with obviously unequal consequences based on person's resources and disproportionately targeting those already vulnerable and marginalized, as you just pointed out, but maybe you can say more about the consequences of this. Yeah, I think that there's the inequalities that are already part of the criminal legal system. And in the U.S., it's very much structured by race, by where people live, by being low income or having some sort of mental health or um, addiction. Um, but 
another piece of this is thinking about inequality in terms of privacy. And, you know, in the U.S., there isn't a strong constitutional right to privacy like there is in other countries. And so, you know, people often don't think of their privacy rights in the same way, especially if they become accustomed to government surveillance through um, getting government subsidized health care or um, receiving public benefits. You know, these things are not we have a very big welfare state here. So if you receive these benefits, you sort of become part of a government surveillance apparatus. And so people think about privacy in sort of um, a way that can almost encourage these systems to continue to grow in the U.S. because there is a lot of pushback. And then for the people who do really have a strong articulation of their privacy rights, they are able sometimes to have their criminal record removed from the Internet or they are able to um, argue for their records to be sealed. But they're often the people that are least likely to be entangled in the legal system in the first place. So this is another way that social stratification can come through this lens of privacy capital and, and an articulation of privacy rights. Yeah, I've actually tried to put you in in one of these <laughs> systems that you describe, but you know, it wanted money and uh, it was just <laughs> yeah. impossible to get anything out of it <laughs> unless you paid for it. And I thought that I won't probably find anything, so it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so in uh, chapter one, uh, which you titled Digital Turn, you, you set the stage by digging deeper into the processes of digitization of criminal records and the legal prioritization of free speech and transparency over due process, privacy and liberty, which I find really interesting, um, which have kind of opened this, uh, opened these markets uh, and uh, the uh, digital punishment <laughs> as well. Uh, and so you opened the chapter with examples of police departments posting daily logs of arrests and mugshots on their social media feed. And, you know, coming from Europe, this sounds a bit odd. <laughs> so, so maybe you can kind of Tell, tell us uh, how does this work in the US because I don't think we have anything similar like Mugshot's website here, for instance. And uh, yeah, and, and before we touch on these legal issues, uh, you can also tell us more about the types of data that are being scraped from the public uh, sector and how it works. Hmm. Yeah, it's really a, it's a very American phenomenon um, in many ways where these kind of transparency laws have been leveraged to allow for the release of this information. So that's sort of some background. But I think there's also this just American sort of obsession and fascination with crime, like all the crime TV shows. Um, and, you know, this is also the backdrop of mass incarceration and mass criminalization. So there's just so, so, so many more people in the United States that um, are impacted by the legal system because so many people receive harsh punishments for crimes that, you know, for things that perhaps aren't even criminalized in other countries, let alone punishable by a serious um, offense or a serious sentence. And so there's just sort of this normalization of the criminal justice system has been a big part of American culture. And on top of that, um, you know, police departments have a lot of local decision-making. So we really don't have a, a national police force like European countries do. It's all run through states. And, and even then the state police force is quite small. It's really local county level jurisdictions. And so, you know, you really have like 3000 different criminal justice systems operating in the US. And they all make their own decisions about what kind of data systems they're gonna use, what kind of websites that they're gonna run. I mean, a lot of these um, companies, private companies that sell uh, software platforms to these local agencies will say, hey, you can also 
put up a website and we can help you do that. Now, of course, these companies benefit from that because then they also get access to the data. And many of them are also in the business of aggregating uh, public records and reselling them. So you just have all sorts of different opportunities and motives and resources across all these different uh, local agencies. And so you get just this very, very um, diverse set of, of criminal record information. And um, you know, there's kind of two common ways that records start. So one is a person is arrested and they go to the county jail and increasingly common is for a county jail website to have a jailhouse roster. And they say, well, this is for public notice purposes, but this is so their public defender, their, their, their family or loved ones can find them. You know, but the amount of detail that's put on there is really seems to go past those, those stated goals when we have people's home address or their photograph. And then um, that information, because it's on website, is easily scraped. And the private companies that tend to repost these really maximize search engine optimization around people's names. So most people don't have that many search results for their name. But then if you get a, a third-party website like mugshots.com that is trying to drive site traffic because they're making money off of advertising, they're going to put every single person's name into their website in such a way that it's going to be scraped by Google and indexed into search results for a person. So they can really game the system and, and sort of maximize search engines to make sure that they're getting more people to their site. And of course, it's very tantalizing information if you search for somebody's name and just click here to look at their mugshot, you know, it's hard to not click on it, right? There's a whole clickbait element to this. Then the other main source of, of information comes from the courts. And so courts are, you know, um, they're meant to be very open. We don't want secret arrests or secret prosecutions for obvious reasons. And so you can go walk into a courthouse, you can watch court, you can go read court files. But when courts became digitized, they really just used the same set of policies and applied them in a sort of a blanket fashion to their electronic dockets, which, of course, are these massive data sets because courts are so busy in the U.S. because so many people are going to court. And so, you know, you have these big data sets and some states have even started to monetize that. So they will sell the records to background check companies or to other data aggregators. And, you know, there's another question there about who's profiting. So it's not only the private sector, but in some states, even the governmental sector is profiting from the sale of these records. Indeed. And yeah, you, you mentioned this Freedom of Information Act, which has uh, played a key, key, key role here. Maybe you could say uh, something about that and how it has been kind of turned on its head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's an article um, that a legal scholar wrote called The Reverse Sunshine Effect, which I think is really helpful. So, you know, there's this famous line in American law about sunshine being the best disinfectant. So if you shine light on government, that it will clean out and root out corruption. And so that's been the rationale behind making records public. But of course, the point is to make public records about government operations. Instead, the criminal justice system has really used that rationale to make public information about the people that they're choosing to arrest or incarcerate. And it's very frustrating because in the U.S., there's little to no information about prison conditions, prosecutorial discretion, plea bargains, parole board hearings, police misconduct, police violence, police shootings. We don't have data on any of that. It's hard even to get good data on racial patterns and arrests, really basic stuff. But I can get very, very detailed information about the people that are held in a jail or a prison. And so there's sort of been this way. I think the public has kind of been tricked into thinking they're getting transparency, but they're just getting transparency about other 
civilians, not about the government itself. Yeah, uh, and you also mentioned that uh, uh, <clears throat> informal people search and these background check websites uh, are not subject to this Fair Credit Reporting Act. What does it? What does that mean? How, how is this uh, kind of possible? <laughs> Yeah, and I'm hoping this changes soon. There's some interesting court cases working their way through the system now that are trying to, that might change this. Um, but as it stands, the only federal regulation in the U.S. for background checks is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And it's a um, governmental regulation that requires companies that are providing background checks that are going to be used for employment or housing or some sort of decision-making process requires them to follow procedures to ensure that their data is accurate. So, you know, it, it adds in a, a liability where if I have a background check run on me by an employer and all this incorrect information comes on and then I don't get this job because of the incorrect information, I could sue the background check company or the background check company could be fined by the federal government for not showing that they have good procedures in place to for accurate information and, and there's notice requirements about they have to give me a copy of the record things like that so it's an okay protection it's not perfect but it's what we have however the companies that are simply scraping and aggregating the data they claim that they are not a, com a background check company or what we would call a consumer reporting agency they say well we're just like google or we're just like twitter we're just a platform where third-party information, by this they mean information from the courts, is just aggregated and we can't be responsible for it. Now, it's really tricky because the information that they produce really looks like a background check. It just will say on there, this is not a Fair Credit Reporting Act compliant background check. So, you know, an employer shouldn't use it and an employer would also be liable for using an unregulated service. But we don't know what employers do before the formal stage of background checking. They could search for people and say, well, this person's just not qualified for the job. And because these companies say they're just a platform, they're protected by Section 230, which is a very um, hotly debated law in the U.S. that protects the freedom of the Internet. And it, it means that the, the platform that's, that's posting this information or letting third parties post information is not liable in any way for something that's incorrect or defamatory. So it protects something like Yelp, right, where if there's a restaurant review that's um, factually incorrect or very damaging to the reputation of a restaurant that restaurant can't sue yelp because of what another person posted so it's a i think it's a very weak argument for these companies to be making but as it stands they are just totally unregulated they're protected under section 230 and we'll see if the courts start to say i don't know you look so much like a background check company we think you need to be regulated differently <laughs> Indeed. And as you just said, uh, the key consumers of this uh, criminal justice data are not the citizens who watchdog the government, uh, <laughs> but uh, the companies that are uh, not just to kind of watchdog uh, one another. But on top of it, as you show in this uh, chapter two, which you titled The Broken Records, uh, they often do it uh, using incomplete, incorrect or misused data. You already kind of touched up on that. Uh, uh, the fact that there are so many sources and, and so many jurisdictions and so forth. Um, uh, you show how the drive towards this technological innovation in the criminal justice system has created the situation and you use two case studies of New York and Pennsylvania. 
And you opened the chapter with a meeting organized by a nonprofit that helps people obtain their criminal records or a rap sheet. Um, there are also various expungement services and industry and in itself, as it appears to me. <laughs> and uh, the simple question is, uh, why is it so incredibly difficult in the US to access one's record and to correct it or to remove it? Uh, you know, I, I was fascinated by the existence of these uh, nonprofits and organizations and and so forth. It's uh, just yeah, <laughs> very kind of. Yeah, I was shocked by that too. <laughs> I mean, this record is used routinely to deny people employment, to deny them housing. Um, the collateral consequences of a criminal record are widely documented. There's literally thousands and thousands of laws. Um, based that that bar people from all sorts of things based on a criminal record. So um, different types of jobs, like being a home health aide or um, working in like a hair salon, right? Um, you can't serve on a jury. You can't vote. Like there's all these ways that you're impacted by having a criminal record. So you would think that because it's so important, it would be, you know, possible for a person to know what's on their own record. And it's amazing. Most people have no idea. And that's because the record keeping is pretty bad and all the local jurisdictions keep their own data. And they are supposed to, in every state, give it up to the state level where a you know, person's a rap sheet, where all the information is supposed to be contained. But you have to pay money to get access to that. And most people don't have the time or the money to do that. You have to get fingerprinted in most states. Um, where I work in New Jersey, is $40 just to look at your own record. So I think an easy policy solution is first of all, give people access to this record. And we have great federal regulation around educational records, health records, credit reports, where you'd have the right to see your own information. Um, we have not applied that right to criminal records. So it's just, you know, become this unfortunate situation where people perhaps want to Maybe they think that there's something, a, a private background check that doesn't look right, or they want to get their records sealed or expunged. There's increasingly more legislation in the U.S. where people can have their records sealed after a certain number of time, number of years. The problem is, you know, to do these things, you have to go get a copy of the record. So we have this, this sort of cottage industry of nonprofits that will help people with that. It's tough, though, because legal aid is very scarce in the U.S., and the only time you're guaranteed a lawyer is if you're facing criminal charges and you can get a public defender. Most of these issues related to the record-keeping itself are civil matters, and there's no uh, constitutional right to have civil legal aid provided for you. And so um, there's not a lot of resources. There's not a lot of help for people. So, yeah, I, I did field work at places where they do have some funding to do this, and people come in and and they sit down with volunteer attorneys to try to understand what's on the record itself. Um, and it, what's, you know, the reason I chose that case study is, is that this is in the context of New York City, which was making claims of being the most data-driven prosecutorial and police system in the country. And their whole sort of uh, mantra was that data is going to inform everything that they do. It would protect people that aren't dangerous and, and really target people that are technically dangerous. And as I show in the book, that's really just not the case. It was kind of a lot of fluff. The records are really bad. And they can be very consequential for people. They, people have open cases for years that sit on a record. They look like they're a fugitive on the run when, in fact, it's just because of a data error. So there's all sorts of issues that come out of this, both at the institutional and the personal levels. Yeah, you mentioned this notorious Comstat and uh, all these... <laughs> Technologies, yeah. I mean, it's fascinating this kind of techno optimism, right? Uh, kind of uh, running into <laughs> reality. But uh, yeah, but uh, what does it mean when, for instance, you have uh, 
and there you note know, some kind of estimates from a couple of lawyers or that the 30 to 50 percent of error rates happen on these kind of rap sheets and that kind of these um, these cases are not uh, closed. Uh, I mean, what does it mean when this kind of bench warrant is not sealed? What consequences can it have for people? Yeah, it's really hard. I mean, once the record's out there, it's used to justify all sorts of discrimination and public stigmatization. And, you know, I think it's very frustrating for people who, so, so some people say, yeah, okay, I have a criminal conviction. You know, they may have, um, there may be questions about whether it was deserved or not. And, you know, nearly a hundred percent of felony convictions in the United States happen through plea bargain. There's no jury. There's no, there's no trial. So a lot of times it's people sort of agreeing to some criminal charge as a way to alleviate them from a more serious punishment, whether or not it was deserved. So, you know, but let's say someone did, okay, I guess I got the conviction. I was, I, I did the crime, you know, even then it's so frustrating for them to not be able to have a clear data trail, right? So let alone people that might be innocent, people that say, yeah, it was me. It's so, it's so frustrating for them to not be able to see what it is, to see um, whether or not it's fixed. And then if the case, there is an error on it, there is no governmental responsibility to fix it. So you, the person, have to go to every single courthouse and every single jail that may have some information on you, gather that information together, and then, you know, basically make a case for why the government has to fix the record to each of these agencies. And then you have to do the follow-up to make sure they actually corrected the information. And remember, this means asking people to go back into the police departments or the courts where they were arrested or where they had a trial or where they saw a judge. And most people don't want to re-engage with the system. They don't trust the system. So why would they put themselves back on this on the radar of the system? So there's a, a huge chilling effect, I think, and most people don't want to have to try to, you know, deal with um, all these data problems. All right. Yeah, you mentioned the case from Pennsylvania of the inmate lookup tool. I must <laughs> admit, I didn't know it, it was possible to look up inmates uh, like that, but uh, now we know. And uh, and that kind of also opens this discussion of, you know, these kind of providers providing management tools and management systems for for the government. And, um, and yeah, how does this how does this work, uh, actually? Uh... <laughs> yeah, this was a very interesting it was a federal case um, in, it was in Pennsylvania, and but it was in federal court. And it was a class action lawsuit against a county that had something called this inmate lookup tool on their website. And what happened was the software provider came, and I think they've been using the software provider for a few years. And, and it was really um, a software platform that allowed them to just manage the people coming in and out of the jail, which makes sense just administrative. And then one year, the new upgrade to the system allowed them to have a website. And it was the sort of the story of, you know, legal compliance, very sociological of, of people not really understanding the law, kind of making up the law or their own interpretation of the law. So here, this county said, well, is it legal to have this website? And instead of really getting into the research of it, they just looked to see what the other counties were doing. And because the other counties had a website, they figured it was okay. Well, it turns out there's a, a little line in Pennsylvania state law that you can't disclose criminal record information without having consent of the subject. Now, the law was written to really cover that that state criminal record, the rap sheet. So the government or the, the local government that put up the inmate lookup tool argued, well, we're not providing criminal records. We're just posting public records about who's in the jail. But the way they did it was a big data dump. So they get this new website and then they put up tens of thousands of people's criminal 
information all at once. Their mug shots when they were arrested. I mean, they had people who were dead who were showing up on this website, people who were arrested 20, 30 years ago. And one man who became the lead plaintiff for this class action, um, his family found it and it was really devastating for him. And he was not convicted of a crime, but he was arrested during um, an argument with his with his ex-girlfriend, a very common thing that happens. And um, he went to jail for a couple hours. He actually had his record legally expunged. He never told anybody about it. And then all of a sudden it was on the internet. And it was it was terrible for him. His family was horrified. Um, his family lives in other countries. So I think it was also extra confusing for them not having to deal. You know, I think in America, you could sort of accustom to these things being public, but his family was really blown away. So he looked like this serious criminal when, in fact, of course, he wasn't. So he started fighting his case and um, and the and the class won. So the the local county was on the hook for millions and millions of dollars because the interesting thing about this Pennsylvania law is that it includes damages. So if a criminal justice system employee improperly discloses a criminal record, um, that person's entitled to one hundred to one thousand dollars. And so um, it was a it was a jury trial, and the jury awarded um, those those damages to the to the class. So since then, since the book in, in the past couple of years, there's been a lot of negotiation about um, how much money is actually going to get paid out. I think they finally just settled it in the last couple of months. Um, so, you know, it, it was a, a rare example of sort of the people winning in one of these scenarios. <laughs> yeah, because it's also uh, interesting with the question of a miscarriage of justice due to mistakes in the records, right? Uh, when dealing with, uh, with this and with kind of data-driven injustice, many tend to resort to this kind of I acted in good faith uh, type of argument that you describe. Um, and this kind of responsibility and accountability seems to be kind of shuffled through these bureaucratic and technological systems. It ends up somewhere in the <laughs> disappearing in the in the process. Um, what's this kind of a good faith uh, exception that you have? Uh... Yeah, this is sort of fits into this broader concept of legal immunities in the U.S. So, you know, um, it's a very litigious society here. and People sue each other. Um, in fact, we, we have a sort of a lack of regulation because the, the legal system allows for lawsuits. So instead of having government regulate, you know, a lot of like consumer safety and, and things like that happen through litigation between parties. Um, so, one thing the U.S. government was worried about was people were going to sue the government all the time, and it's going to, to you know, take all this people's tax money, and, and it's going to have to go to legal fees to, to deal with these litigations. So there's immunities built in. So you can't just sue a governmental actor unless you have very good cause, um, and you have to go through all these loopholes, basically. So um, you may have heard of qualified immunity. That's in the U.S. if you're hurt by a police officer or killed by a police officer. It would be very difficult to sue them for harm because they have this, this qualified immunity. So they, they, they are not liable. They can't be sued. So um, this also applies to the people who make uh, data mistakes. So the county clerk that incorrectly enters information, uh, the prosecutor who incorrectly fills out a docket sheet, whoever, um, is not held liable. So, you know, the guardrails of how we sort of fix a lot of problems in the U.S. of, of private litigation is not available to people. And so there's very little incentive for government to improve these uh, systems because it doesn't harm them in any way to be producing these errors. Right. 
And yeah, so let's move to the next chapter three, <laughs> selling records. So you turn to the industry and investigate the marketization of basically morality and risk by all these companies reproducing public records. And you speak of penal entrepreneurialism and the professionalization of private intelligence and investigations and the rise of private public partnerships that extend the reach of the state and the criminal justice system. Uh, uh, the market uh, that has, um, that has emerged speaks to this kind of outsourcing uh, of police powers to private actors and privatization of social control. And I think this is kind of the most important point that you kind of see this uh, spreading of the criminal justice logic and surveillance throughout society, uh, right? Uh, and even this kind of community policing falls within this logic. Um, maybe you could give us some concrete examples of companies that operate in this market and, uh, and you know, what uh, what kind of uh, purposes beyond this kind of hiring and and so forth? What 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 do they serve? Kind of who are the customers and uh, name a couple of them and so forth. <laughs> yeah, I, I spent a lot of time on a company called um, <coughs> Excuse Me Instant Checkmate, and they're one of those companies that's not regulated under the Fair Credit Reporting Act, so they have no legal obligation for to provide accurate information to update their records. Nothing like that. They say, we're just, you know, an innocent aggregator and we just post this stuff for curiosity. So they warn you, don't use this for a hiring decision. Don't use this for any sort of um, institutional purposes. We, again, we don't know what people actually use these records for, but that's what, that's what they claim. And, and that's how they protect themselves legally by putting that all over the website. Um, but, you know, what they really do in their advertising model is they try to make people feel afraid. And we have this culture where crime is everywhere. Fear of crime never tracks to actual crime rates in the U.S. It's always much, much, much higher. Um, there's a lot of sensationalized crime. There's this idea of stranger crime when you know you look at data that's very rare. It's much more likely that you're going to be harmed by somebody that you know. But of course, we have no like cultural uh, response to that or no sort of like uh, exciting, scary uh, framing for that. And so these websites um, really prey on our vulnerability. That's the idea that crime is everywhere and the best way to protect yourself is to try to know as much as possible. And it's kind of fits into this bigger idea of like, you know, because of digitization of the internet, we can know everything and then we have to know everything. And then it's responsabilization that we, we should know everything. And the the logic that is tied to that is that if something bad happens to you, um, it's your fault, right? It's it's you, it's the victim's fault for not having run a background check on every single person. And the irony is the background checks are full of incorrect data. So it's, it's a terrible tool to try to protect yourself, but that's what they do. They market it in that way. Um, this has just become a thing in online dating in the U.S. So the largest uh, company in the online dating market that owns Tinder, that owns Match.com, they own it's a lot of different platforms, um, have now put a ton of money into a background checking company, um, a startup, and it's integrated into the app. So now you can run a background check on your date. And like these people search websites, this is not a regulated background check company. They say, again, oh, we're just innocently aggregating data. And it's up to the user to, to interpret what it means. We're just providing a platform to, for these records to be posted. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's really another example of how background checking has just infiltrated all parts of our social lives. So like you said, it, it goes beyond just the employment context now. It's everything. It's, it's your new neighbors. It's your potential date. 
Um, and what's harmful about that is it's shutting people out of society. And in fact, it's shutting people out of all the domains that we know could prevent crime, which is letting people get into safe and steady relationships, safe and stable housing, safe and stable employment. Indeed. And I was wondering, you know, I'm, I'm looking now at this kind of rec tech industry and compliance industry and so forth, right? And there you see that this is kind of the key. Uh, <laughs> I mean, maybe these kind of sites are a bit uh, bit more kind of directed to private consumers or so f- and so forth. But you have those, you know, LexisNexis, Refinitiv, Thomson Reuters, you know, all, all these kind of delivering compliance and risk solutions and so forth, right? And part of this is always because of due diligence, enhanced due diligence, now the sanction screening. All of that requires this kind of... Uh, these kind of tools, right? Uh, where you where you aggregate also data from the media, from from whatever they might be having, uh, scraping social sites and so forth. And uh, have you looked into into this kind of compliance uh, sphere? Because I find it really interesting because this is where you get you know a legal obligation to do due diligence and so forth, and you must do it uh, as a bank or a regulated entity. So you're basically forced to do your intelligence and you're forced to kind of use these providers uh, uh, to to comply with the law. But but at the same time, you kind of, uh, you know, the state has kind of chosen to delegate all these powers to, to the private sector. And since it is intelligence, you can always claim, well, it's just intelligence and this is the this is the best decision making support we just have at this particular moment in time and uh, and we don't have to prove that it is correct so i wonder you know because you make this distinction between these kind of uh, regulated and unregulated uh, companies i would like to know where do these companies fit in uh, in that kind of space uh, yeah yeah it's such a great point and i think that's really kind of the next wave of where all this data is going is that it's, you know, it's been used in this kind of the background checking sector, which has sort of been its own bubble. And then it's spilled over into this like data aggregation, people search, internet, web-based. And that's really directed towards, again, individual consumers and the general public. But the sort of uh, the super aggregation of data into risk modeling and predictive analytics and continuous background check uh, checking and, and all these sort of sort of almost like live updated uh, modeling that is possible now. I mean, I think it's, I, I think the intersection of regulation is, is who's leading the law, right? Is it that there's an actual identifiable problem and that we, the, the law or policymakers look to a solution or is it that these companies market the existence of a potential problem? And, you know, there's great research on legal consciousness and organizational compliance to law. And if you really dig in, a lot of the times the threats are quite imagined and they are um, kind of whispered into the ears of, of companies that are regulated, not by government, but by whoever's going to profit from this feeling like a legal obligation. And so, you know, there's so many strands to unpack there, but I think the way you put it is so great because thinking about like who is the audience and who benefits is always the most important questions I think, I think to ask here. Um, and, and I think in general, too, you know, people, especially employers, have um, a really, a really large, a big gap in understanding of what their actual legal liability is. And so, you know, there's really great research that looks at the, the, the truth and sort of what lawsuits actually come up and what sort of bad things might happen to companies versus what um, expectations are. And there's just such a wide gulf there between the two. Yes, indeed. 
Yeah, it is a bit like with every single regulation that comes, you have this huge market that opens up, right? For all kinds of software and all kinds of consultancies and so forth. And those are again, heavily involved in making regulations, right? So you could say that, you know, the states try to capture the regulation, the private regulation, but the private regulation might have captured the state. <laughs> yeah, right. right. <laughs> But yeah, and uh, let's turn back to the book and uh, to the chapter four, you write about these vigilantes. I found it really uh, interesting, these digital vigilantes uh, or these kind of ordinary citizens trying to create uh, online crime watch networks and uh, in their neighborhoods and blogging and Facebooking and tweeting and retweeting these kind of uh, police uh, sites and so forth and shaming and sharing information kind of in the name of public safety. But again, this creates this persistent sense of <laughs> unsafety right <laughs> and that right. and so forth uh, but how do they i was kind of uh, interested uh, most in the way in which they try to legitimize what they're doing and how do they explain uh, that this is uh, kind of important and uh, yeah yeah this was actually what started this whole project was somebody in my community started a blog when i was a graduate student where he was posting the the local uh, inmate roster from the jail that they would put up just a text-based file that would regularly update with who was currently in the jail and he would was sort of frustrated that it was being live updated and not archived so he was making his own archive and it was on uh, blog spot so it was indexed by google and you know so people's names started to be attached to his blog and and so i you know emailed him and said what is this can you is this is this legal like what what is this why are you doing this and um it really opened the door to interviewing a lot of other people that are featured in that chapter who run similar websites and as i was doing the research you know it really transformed from blogs or websites into social media and then the next iteration has been platforms designed just for this so like nextdoor.com there's an app here called citizen and so um, I've watched the kind of activity evolve, but I think the justifications sort of have remained the same. And one is, you know, people felt like the media was not paying attention to local issues and that this was their way to kind of um, notify people, you know, in their, in their small community, a very hyper-local focus. This was also, you know, it was before Trump was president, but I think there was a lot of things I heard in these interviews that looking back signaled to me that there was this growing distaste for the elites, the elite media that was not covering issues that mattered and instead was covering things according to their own agenda. And this, of course, that became the rhetoric that ushered in that presidency. So, um, you know, the project started at a very interesting moment in time in that sense. And then there was also the sense that not only were the media not doing their job, but that local police weren't being responsive and that if you could crowdsource public safety, you could be more effective than the police who, again, have an uh, agenda that doesn't respond adequately to local issues. And so those are some of the kind of rationales people gave me for why they did this. And then, of course, they had the, the argument we've talked about several times. Now, that, well, it's public record anyways. And so you can really absolve yourself as responsibility for putting out stigmatizing content about other people that might harm them because the government's doing it first. And so, you know, people could really kind of use the First Amendment in very creative ways um, in that sense. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it falls also into this logic of this community policing, right? Uh, it's just uh, such a 
<laughs> uncanny thing but yeah uh, and you moved in the next chapter called digital degradation uh, to the actual harms of this uh, digital punishment and and the ways uh, I find is really interesting that people attempt to or they fail to manage uh, their kind of digital doubles or uh, criminal doubles <laughs> and uh, many opt for strategies of digital avoidance try to avoid the internet altogether <laughs> Uh, fearing that engaging the problem will only make it worse. Uh, and uh, and you mentioned uh, two cases which I thought were interesting. The one of this uh, Daryl, or who you call Daryl, whose booking photo appeared in the Bested magazine and uh, with a gallery of mugshots. And uh, on top of that, his identity was stolen while he was in jail. Um, and this identity theft I found particularly interesting because, as you note, it's often overlooked the uh, consequence of posting personally identifiable data on arrests and incarcerations. And as a result, uh, even though the charges against him were dropped, his online reputation was damaged, obviously, and the identity theft destroyed his credit score on top of it. And he tried to remove his mugshot from several sites, uh, reported the stolen identity and seek the expungement, uh, but he gave up quickly. <laughs> and another was this uh, Kyle, who was caught in a large-scale criminal investigation of alleged internet-based sexual misconduct uh, by a certain digital accident. Uh, and although the accusations turned out to be false, uh, they again created irreparable damage. Um, and uh, with the combination of the justice system and the internet and uh, resulted in public shaming, him getting fired uh, and a range of other personal losses. Um, and he had more creative ways of trying to handle this. Uh, but the question is again, how, how, do, how do you handle it uh, uh, as, a, as a kind of victim? What, uh, what do people do in this situation? Yeah, it's tough. So yeah, Daryl's a great example of someone who like, did a lot of work to understand all these problems because they were happening in kind of different institutional settings. There was like this magazine and a website and then there was the identity theft and then there was his actual legal case and, and then legal expungement that would accompany that. And it was completely overwhelming. And in the meantime, you know, like how I like how you put it, he's like, you don't want to address it because you don't want to make it worse. And I think in a book, I talk about the Streisand effect, which is this internet phenomenon where like by Barbara Streisand said, like, don't photograph my house. And everyone went and photographed her house. So, you know, you don't want to draw attention to things. And, you, you know, I've interviewed lots of people that talk about trying to fly under the radar. And and that that's harmful, though. That means you're not looking for um, jobs or places to live or new friends or new social groups or civic engagement or volunteering or like, meeting the other parents at your kid's school. I mean, you're missing out on all these parts of life that um, are fulfilling and, you know, from a social perspective, very beneficial socially to have people participate in that way. So I think there's like individual and broader harms that come from, from the digital avoidance. And then there was a the handful of people I talked to who tried to address it themselves. So um, Kyle, who had some background in IT, he started blogging and writing, um, web posts and making social media content about the TV show Arrested Development because it had the word arrested and his name. And so he was trying to crowd out that other content. Um, he he started websites. He started a company. Bolstering your um, po positive credentials is really not only something that is in, in this kind of criminal justice realm, but also in reputation management writ large, because in the U.S., we don't have the right to be forgotten. You can't have things delisted from Google. So the workaround is just to encourage people to, to just to kind of um, obscure all the bad content by just blowing up all the good content. 
Um, and again, that takes a certain type of privacy capital. You have to feel that your rights were violated. Um, and many people who have gone through the system over and over don't conceptualize their rights in that way because their rights have been taken away so many times. And so you, if you have a little bit of know-how though and a little bit of, of um, computer experience, and again, that feeling that your rights should be protected, then you, then you can do some do some work to try to get things fixed online. You're right. Yeah, and, and again, this brings us to the kind of stigmatization that arises. And uh, I really like the fact that you try to update this theory of stigma for the digital age. And uh, maybe you can say uh, something. How does this digital element transform a stigma? And what what does it do to the kind of possibility of positive reintegration where you already hinted at that, that it makes it much more difficult? But, uh, <laughs> but maybe you can say something more about the stigma part of it. Yeah, I think, you know, this is sort of um, the more kind of theoretical and academic part of this is that many people, I'm a sociologist and, and many people in my field spent many, many years researching stigma and and the impact of stigma, but then also the idea that people can kind of overcome stigma. And, you know, original conceptions of stigma by Goffman, criminal records were something that you could hide, right? So if you talked about stigma that you could hide and stigma that you couldn't hide. So like external things on your body or things you can't hide. Um, but something like a criminal record, you could hide from other people. You could choose when to disclose it. Well, obviously we're in a context now where that's impossible. So for me, as a, a scholar of that, those theories, you know, it raised all these doubts about how these theories can persist in a digital age and how do they need to be updated. Um, and, and a lot of other research um, tied to stigma is on desistance from crime. So how do people, like if they are ready to make the choice or, or really the age crime curve, once you hit a certain age, you're very unlikely to commit another crime. There's uh, recidivism research. It shows after a certain number of years, you're no more risky than a person in the general population. So there's all these ways that we've thought about desistance and the digital context really interrupts all these desistance processes that have been identified by researchers. So the time, the clock that is required to elapse for people to kind of move in its next stage of life keeps getting interrupted because the mugshot might pop back up or the next background check might basically bring that criminal record uh, back to life like the event just happened. And so people I interviewed would say, you know, this is part of kind of like giving up on trying to be in the straight and narrow because I can never escape the past. So what's the point? So it's sort of like labeling theory on steroids in that way. And then it becomes this, this kind of master identity for people when all this research shows that that cognitive transformation, that identity transformation is the key component to moving on from your past mistakes. Okay. And I hear you become reduced to just this one thing. It's kind mm -hmm. of... Terrible. But yeah, uh, in the next uh, chapter, Magda, you kind of build further on this uh, kind of attempts to resist this and you look at activists and those seeking to reform uh, the online mugshot extortion industry. And uh, they try to seek to place uh, the burden uh, of reforming digital punishment on the tech companies and on the search engines uh, themselves. And I was particularly struck by the fact that the, even lawyers themselves face kind of revenge tactics from these mugshot <laughs> websites, <laughs> including receiving death threats in uh, the case you mentioned, and uh, and that kind of these reputation management websites, as one would suspect, uh, turn out to be run by the same mugshot outfits. <laughs> so so this uh, this kind of uh, yeah, how do you fight against these companies uh, uh, in this kind of scenario? <laughs> yeah. The the activists really showed 
me how insidious these mugshot websites were. And that's why I devoted a whole chapter on it because, you know, first of all, it's your picture. It's such a personal thing. And then also the way that Google works with Google images that these mugshot pictures would sometimes stick to a person's search results, even if like their text-based, web-based results were were made no mention of a criminal record. And, and it's just this picture taken at such a horrible, vulnerable moment. Um, oftentimes people are intoxicated, they're in pain, they're going through the, probably the worst day of their life. And then there's this picture. And so the fact that these websites would post them and then they would extort people. And many laws have now passed state, or many states have now passed laws to outlaw um, collecting money for takedowns, but now they just run reputation management websites on the side that like take the pictures down. So, you know, it's, it's still pretty gross, but, but a few years ago it was really bad. And so um, these activists were doing all sorts of things like um, scraping the mugshot websites themselves, blurring the pictures, um, maximizing the SEO on the blurred pictures with the scrambled up names and um, using that as a way to educate the public. If somebody stumbled upon that website and just trying to do kind of, um, mess with the market that the, the, the mugshot websites had created for themselves. So there was a, this Italian artist who I spent some time with who did this really uh, fascinating project um, called Obfuscation. I was just taking these mugshots and blurring them and scrambling them. And, um, you know, there's this idea of creating noise as a way to kind of complicate the the way the digital punishment works that I think is is can be very effective um, and and raise awareness as well. And so um, the other part of that work with Paolo and with the other activists that um, was interesting for me was just thinking about the role of Google and increasingly the role, the role of Facebook. And I think, you know, since the book was published, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis and many people, the summer the book came out, many people were in the streets marching um, for criminal justice reform. And all these companies, Google, Facebook, were publicly committed to anti-racist policing and they were publicly committed to reform and, and you know, making these corporate claims of supporting this movement when they were allowing for police records, data created by police, mugshots and arrest records to exist all over their platforms. And, you know, because of the public records law and the strength of that law in the U.S., I don't even know that regulation is the right move. I think that company policies could actually deliver justice to people much more quickly. So just having the opportunity to ask, to request that Facebook or Google de-link your, your mugshot from the search for your name would make such a difference in people's lives. And they just really had no interest whatsoever in trying to address their role in perpetuating these harms, even while they're making public proclamations of being very supportive of the philosophy um, behind this movement. Yeah, but even if you have this uh, this possibility to delink on Google, right, the right to be removed, the discretionary judgment is left to the corporation. Yes, and that's something that um, I have a co-author, Alessandro Corda, who's at uh, Queen's University in Belfast, and we, we just did a paper on this, where if you actually look at the decision-making by Google, they're kind of taking the role of judge and jury, because they'll say, well, you know, that criminal record is still in the public interest, and this one is not, or this person seems to be remorseful, and this person isn't, and, you know, it, it really is like a whole new iteration of the privatization of punishment when we think about their uh, role in being able to to evaluate who's uh, worthy of redemption. Yeah, exactly. So this is another 
problem. And I think this is also what is spreading in the workplaces and these kind of in, you have these insider threat management systems I've been looking at recently. This is the same kind of logic. Uh, you know, you, you have all sorts of systems for internal investigations and so forth that, you know, there's no due process, no, nothing. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that's kind of widespread. And this brings us kind of to the last uh, part, to the legal part. Um, I just wanted to know, I mean, you outlined certain, uh, certain regulations that are relevant in the US and so forth, but I was more interested in, uh, in the recent development since you have written the book, uh, where, where is this kind of, yeah, uh, law headed and is there any positive development? Yeah, I, I, I do think there's been some positive shifts. I think 2020 was a big year. Um, when it comes to convincing state legislatures to, to change their thinking on uh, punishment. So um, quite a few police departments have stopped releasing mugshots and, and it really is an agency by agency decision. Um, some states have passed laws that bar law enforcement from posting mugshots on social media. California uh, just passed a law there. Um, newsrooms have started to change their attitude about this quite a bit. Um, when I started this research years ago, journalists were really concerned that this would lead to censorship, this would lead to um, losing access to government records, that it would disrupt public records law. Um, but since then, now newsrooms are allowing a, a, a newspaper by newspaper right to be forgotten. So if you have this old crime story, you can write to them and ask them to consider taking it off the internet. Um, the Some of the biggest uh, companies that own most of the newspapers in the U.S., um, including the AP, um, and Gannett newspapers are no longer printing the names of people suspected of minor crimes. Gannett newspapers are no longer publishing mugshots online. So there's like these kind of uh, efforts to kind of stop it before it becomes a problem for people, which is which is great. It's kind of hitting it at the source. So there's definitely been some changes there. Um, and the other big thing that's that's really taken off in the past few years is expungement law. And part of that is because of marijuana decriminalization. So states, when they legalize marijuana, they have all these thousands and thousands and thousands of people that have marijuana convictions, they got to do something about. So that's really accelerated um, automated expungement, automated record sealing. And um, it's incredible. I mean, almost every week in another state has, has expanded their expungement law. And so the more people that get expungements, I think the more leverage and pressure there will be on private companies to keep their data updated. Um, there's a couple people search uh, companies, these unregulated background check companies that are in federal court right now. There was just an oral argument on Tuesday for one of these cases. And um, they're trying to say that they are protected under Section 230 and they're not responsible for the accuracy of the data. And, and these appellate courts are saying, I don't think so. It sounds like you need to be regulated. And so if there's enough activity there, this could be a Supreme Court case in the next couple of years. So we'll see. Um, the, the one thing that does you know, bring concern, though, is that there's certainly a perception in the past few months in the U.S. that crime is going up. There's been an, a renewed um, attempt from the uh, right wing to bring sex offense registries and sex offenders back into the public consciousness. We know that sex offender registries do not work. They're very ineffective. They're full of people that aren't dangerous. Um, they're deeply, deeply stigmatizing. And yet, you know, the latest Supreme Court nomination hearing, there was a, an enormous focus on sex offense registries. So I don't know. It's criminal justice in America is always kind of doing this pendulum back and forth. Um, but I do think that some of the 
kind of narrow and discrete problems identified in the book um, have been getting addressed. Yeah. Yeah, and you conclude then with uh, the fact that uh, we are now all at risk of digital punishment and surveillance, and this is correct. Uh, and as we have seen, one incident or one record can create a cascade of harms uh, that is kind of impossible to hide from. Uh, but you showed throughout the book that we also indeed bear the likelihood of being impacted uh, and its consequences une unequally. Uh, and view claiming, and you also view this kind of privacy regulation as a potential way to go, as I understand it. And you mentioned GDPR. And I just read uh, today uh, this piece by Oliver Ballow in Forbes on uh, actually GDPR and the way it is actively used by oligarchs and their lawyers as a weapon against journalists and anyone else who wants to subject their rich clients to scrutiny, effectively harassing them into silence because they have the same right to privacy as everybody else. <laughs> so I just wanted to uh, yeah, uh, know if you have any comments on, on that. Yeah. This is the kind of it's all such a moving target, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> the second we think we figure something out, then somebody's going to exploit it to their benefit. So that's sort of, you know, age-old human tendencies, I guess, and, and what we get from a very unequal society. <laughs> Um, you know, I think uh, it's very um, common for American scholars to look to Europe for solutions when it comes to privacy, dignity, and human rights. And um, we'll also look to Europe for the for the problems that can arise, for the loopholes, for the for the cracks in the foundation of these efforts. I think that we always have a lot to learn. Um, so, you know, I think, and you know, I think that. It is always inspiring, though, to see that European regulators aren't afraid of big tech the way that American policymakers are. There's such lobbying, having Google and Apple being headquartered here. I mean, they have such immense power and 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 they influence government. And, and we started to see a little bit of pushback, you know, especially with the role that Facebook has had in, in political outcomes. Um, but they remain very strong. So so I think, you know, it's, it's yet to be seen whether or not... Um, the government will sort of uh, assert itself in the face of, of big tech um, and all the problems that come along with big tech. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, there is some uh, new discussion about these antitrust uh, activities and this new fellow and uh, the antitrust department in the US that <laughs> seems like uh, interested in targeting big tech, but uh, that's another story. So is there <laughs> anything else that you would like to share with uh, our listeners? Any any recent um, work? Anything you? Yeah, I think. I, well, first of all, thank you so much for your interest and your really thoughtful questions and for reading the book. That means a lot to me, and um, and I love talking about this with people who do work um, in other countries. We can compare notes because I think that these problems, you know, we might frame originally in our own geographic context, but I think these are these are much larger forces that we see everywhere. And I think making connections between different institutional patterns is really, really important and to do it globally. So so just thank you so much for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for joining me and for this uh, super enlightening conversation. And so this was Sarah Esther Legison on Digital Punishment. And until next time. Thank you. Thank you.